Hey ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 47 of our podcast. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order, and we don't want you to miss any of the twists and turns in our tale. We're so excited to be reaching thousands of tutor-minded people from all over the world, and we've had a great time researching this project and imagining this tutor world and sharing it with everyone. And if you're enjoying it, support us. Buy some Tutor Time Machine swag. Go to our Tutor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and you'll see all these amazing items we have for sale. So you can get a Do You Tutor tee or a Tutor Time Machine logo sweatshirt, and you can support the podcast at the same time. In our last episode, we saw Philomena at Whitehall. But in this episode, we take our Tutor Time Machine back to 1532 to catch up with the infamous and famous Anne Boleyn and Margaret Wyatt. And after the reading, we'll have some real fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 47, 1532. Calais, the Palace of the Exchequer in which Margaret is happy to be left, and Thomas has an unlooked-for visitor. The emptiness comforted Margaret. Most of the royal retinue had trotted off with Henry to meet the French King Francis. Without Henry to give orders, those who stayed behind were scattered. Margaret was happy to be left to her own devices. She was tired. It was late. By the light of a taper, she looked in the mirror to see if she had gained any of the roundness of being with child. She swished this way and that, but her gown covered everything, as it should be. The pregnancy was in its first months, but she was sure it was already high and forward, so it would be a boy. Although she had also heard, if it were low and wide, that too predicted maleness. If it were a boy, which no doubt it would be, she would call her son Cromwell, honouring their great family friend. Without Cromwell, her brother would surely be in financial ruin. Or should she name her son Henry? Yes, it would be Henry. All the courtiers named their first boy after the king. The child would be called Sir Henry Lee. It sounded a bit as if he had two Christian names, and no surname, but perhaps that was inevitable. Margaret, what are you thinking on that makes you smile? Wrinkle up your nose and smile again. You have caught me, Anne. Anne was splendidly dressed, and had an ornate basket on her head, which shook as she smacked her hands together, yet none of her retinue was present. Henry did not screw up his courage and take me to meet Francis, Anne scowled. He rode off looking shamefaced. He is a little boy who cannot think for himself. He does whatever he is told. What kind of king does not exercise his own will? Margaret understood. Anne expected King Henry to insist Francis command his wife, Queen Eleanor, to receive her. But Margaret herself thought this unlikely from the start. There was little to be gained by a meeting between women, besides the fact that Queen Eleanor refused to meet Anne, considering her the king's whore and not her equal in rank. Margaret understood that too, but mention of Eleanor's position was certain to throw Anne into a rage. Margaret said, Anne, the king did not take many of his courtiers. Fitzwilliam, Russell, Walsh, my brother, they are all left behind. Do not fret, Anne, my good lady, Marquis of Pembroke. You look every inch the queen. Margaret hoped flattery might calm her friend, but Anne only made a sound of frustration. Is this not a snub of your own choosing? 
Margaret asked. And Epistle you would have welcomed you, and I have heard you share religious sympathy. Anne frowned, but Margaret did not stop. I believe King Francis rates that lady far above Queen Eleanor. And that speaks poorly of him. He should not spit in the face of his queen, even if she is detestable. That Anne de Pesselieu is King Francis's lover, his lover. I am not the king's lover. I remain chaste. Anne was gaining ire. This place was a homecoming for me. I grew up here. In court, I served Queen Claude. I loved her. I read with Marguerite. I thought to return victorious. Have you not seen me rise? And this Eleanor, this second queen who has been affianced all over Europe and rejected one hundred times until Francis was forced to marry her, will not meet me. It is ludicrous. Margaret resisted pointing out that just as Eleanor was the second queen to King Francis, if Anne's marriage to Henry ever came to pass after all these years, if the Pope granted the annulment or Catherine died trying to stop it, Anne would also be the second queen. Perhaps Queen Eleanor is jealous of the love Queen Claude bore you, Margaret said, and seeks to humble me. She is a crust of bread. King Francis had to be held captive to force this bond on him. But look to me, Henry. Henry wants to marry me against the wishes of all, and I suffer this indignity. Why does he not champion me? Why does he allow them to treat me so? He should have left Francis to dangle. If he had any fire, we would leave this hated Calais and sail for England. My dear Anne, Francis displayed his mistress on the day of his queen's coronation, but he did not seek to marry her, as Henry, in his devotion to you, wishes. How can you compare me to Anne de Pesselieu? I am not Henry's mistress. Your brother is the only man I have lain with, and the only man I have ever loved. Margaret did not want to talk about her brother or undying love. The wild declamations that Anne made about Thomas tired her. Tedious. She could feel the skin of her belly. It must already be stretching. She rubbed it. You understand me, Anne. Henry will make your heirs legitimate. This is how you think. Only about heirs and baby names. You think nothing of what I have lost. Of what I have given up because you have him. He is your brother and you do not suffer his loss. You need not resent me. The king chose you, and it is your lot to rise. Anne smacked her hands again. Margaret felt the king was unkind to have left without Anne, but there was nothing to do about it. Could Anne not go find a heretical book to occupy herself? I am always the accused, always the witch, the conniver. I am so powerful the king is bewitched. What lies? He is king. Had Catherine borne a son, he would not seek to make me queen. He set on me. He thinks me strong because I do not give in to him as others have. But it takes no strength. I do not want him. Margaret cringed. Dearest Anne, you must stop your own mind. You must find a pliable way to happiness. You have set our country in a roar. You have made the king break with Rome, with the Pope. You have come between the king and his wife of some twenty years. And you have done all this and you cannot go back now. Anne was on her feet, and her expression was unreadable. Tell me, Margaret said, what thoughts whirlwind in that mind? Anne's jaw set. Oh, you frighten me. What plot have you? None at all, Margaret. Only do I not want happiness? Do I not want for a bit of time to be the most happy? Anne was out of the door before Margaret could even protest. Thomas Wyatt felt his life was in fairly good order. He spread himself out on the bed and reached for the glass of wine beside him. 
he and the king had gone hunting. He had faked awe for Henry, as he ought. His debts were not pressing, his creditors far away in London. Lines sprang up in his mind. Farewell, love, and all thy laws for ever. Thy baited hooks shall tangle me no more. Senec and Plato call me from thy law, to perfect wealth, my wit for to endeavour. That was good. He need not close his eyes to think of the next lines. The room was so very dark, and the sound of the sea was a mystery. That great body of water, filled with beasts, unimaginable. What ho! Someone had slid in the bed beside him. That little M.A.? Or was it pretty Marie? Two hands on his face, and a flesh smell he knew better than any other woman's. Do you not know me, knave? Anne, he heard his voice, phlegmy, not manly. Anne, 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 my own Anne. Do you not want to be happy, Thomas? I do, sweetheart, I do. She kissed him, and oh, paradise, she was without a stitch of clothing. Uh-oh, Anne and Wyatt. Well, maybe they figure what happens in Calais stays in Calais. Maybe. But at this point in 1532, when this section of the story takes place, Calais is in English territory. So weirdly, they are off the English Isle, but they are still in England. Calais is now in France, but it's really close to England, only 21 miles. And it blows my mind that you can now take the train from London to Paris and be in another country in a few hours, right through what they call the Channel. Breakfast in London. Lunch in Paris. Yes, please. (laughs) But in the 15th and 16th century, the port of Calais was a gateway for trade, especially in wool, lace, lead, and tin, and it was very important to the English. I read that in the almost 200 years that the English held the city, about one-third of all the English government's revenue came from custom taxes that were collected at the port of Calais. Well, it's no wonder they wanted to hold on to it then. But I've also read that it was really expensive to retain it because they had to keep up these fortifications, they had to keep up the city walls, and they had to have a loyal garrison at the ready to protect the city and the port from people who were trying to take it back for France. In 1558, the Duke of Guise surprised the English at Calais. They reclaimed it for France. And this was such a loss for Mary. And the legend is that on her deathbed, Mary I said, when I am dead and opened, you shall find Calais lying in my heart. Because she died in 1558. This was one of the last things that happened during her reign. I read that on her deathbed, she told her ladies, when I am dead and cut open, they will find Philip and Calais inscribed on my heart. Her two big losses. (laughs) At least she was articulate. (laughs) She was articulate. And there you have the problem with historical research, though. There's so many different accounts. It's always the case. But however she really phrased it, we can understand and pity Mary. Mary dying of cancer and losing Calais and her husband Philip because he was off living it up in Madrid. She died alone. In our chapter, that's all in the future. On October 11th, 1532, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn with their entourage set out for Calais on board the Swallow. They were going to Calais to hang out with King Francis I. And when they arrived in Calais, the town feted Henry and his, well, queen-in-waiting Anne Boleyn. (laughs) Yeah, she was in a sort of a weird situation. I'm sure people were like, hmm. Henry and Anne were housed in the Palace of the Exchequer, and Francis I 
was hosted at the Staple Inn, all expenses paid by Henry because it was English territory. It must have been a very swanky place to have the King of France staying there. No, because the Staple Inn sounds a little bit like the Holiday Inn Express, (laughs) doesn't it? It doesn't sound like a swanky place, but it must have been a little bit like the presidential suite at the Ritz. As we've said in a previous episode, the point of this trip to Calais in 1532 was for Henry VIII and Francis I to meet and cement an allegiance. Henry and Francis both feared Charles V because he was the bigwig king of Spain, but he was also the Archduke of Austria, the Lord of the Netherlands, the titular Duke of Burgundy, oh, and the Holy Roman Emperor. Wow. I think Henry particularly must have been very envious of him. Henry wanted those kind of titles, that kind of power. And Charles V also happened to be Catherine of Aragon's nephew. Of course, Charles V didn't support the annulment of this royal marriage, nor did he support Henry's break with Rome. So Henry had a lot of reasons for both fearing and disliking Charles V. And Francis I had his own extremely good reasons for despising Charles V. Because Charles's territories as the Holy Roman Emperor surrounded Francis's kingdom at this point. And in 1525, during his four-year battle with Charles, Francis was actually taken prisoner by the Spanish forces in the Battle of yeah, he was, Pavia. He was taken all the way back to Madrid and held prisoner for over a year. That's a pretty unbelievable thing to do to a king. Francis was only freed under the condition that he make some very painful territorial sacrifices and that he sent his two sons to Spain in his place. And he did try to renege on this deal once he got back home. But to no avail, and these sons, and they were six and seven, they were held as prisoners in Madrid, literally held in a cell with bad meals and no education. It was terrible. And the other condition of his release was that Francis betrothed himself to Eleanor of Austria, sister of Charles V, and she was the recent widow of Manuel, King of Portugal, so she was available. And Francis's wife and the mother of his seven children, Queen Claude, had died in 1521, so he was also back on the European marriage market. Charles V thought, hmm, I'll get these two together, and that will solve some issues. So it's fair to say that Francis did not really want to marry her because he, he was being <laughs> held prisoner <laughs> and it was being forced down his throat. So nothing brings up the true love like that kind of situation. But he did agree to marry her in order, be released. In order yeah. to be released. But he absolutely did not want to do it. And so he kind of dragged, avoided it, yeah, dragged he, it out. He yeah. dragged it out. But in 1529, when he had left his poor sons in captivity for four years, he finally agreed to go through this marriage with Eleanor to get his sons back. Can you imagine how Eleanor felt at this point? She knew she was going to this country where people were going to be hostile to her, and she knew that her husband was going to be hostile to her. It must have been a terrible situation for her. Did she think she could right the situation, or did she think, that's just my duty to my brother, I'm sure she God. thought it was her duty to her brother and God, and probably didn't have much choice, because Charles V was a very powerful person and he was over her as her brother. Clearly, Charles V's idea was to try to fix this relationship between France and the Spanish Empire with this marriage, but under these conditions, it was this marriage was bound to fail. In 1532, when our reading takes place, Henry VIII is coming to France to try to solidify an alliance with Francis. Do you think that Charles V sent his sister there to spy, to manipulate things? It's impossible to see his to see into his 
his mind. I mean, it could have been that, but I guess there was some hope that maybe there would be an heir or a child that would sort of cement this relationship. I understand why these political marriages happened, but I think under those circumstances, it was almost impossible for it to be successful. And as we said in 1532, when our reading takes place, Henry VIII is coming to France to try to solidify an alliance with Francis. To show their king bro friendship off to Charles V. Francis's brother-in-law. Not to mention Henry's wife's nephew. But undaunted by all these family connections, Henry shows up in Calais with his religious reformer mistress, Anne Boleyn. And he's like, what's the problem? <laughs> he wants <laughs> Eleanor. Where are the ladies to receive my queen? <laughs> he wants Eleanor, dowager queen of Portugal, reigning queen consort of France, the Catholic Habsburg sister of the Holy Roman Emperor and niece of Catherine of Aragon to welcome Anne with open <laughs> arms, formally receive her, make a fuss. And Eleanor says, no merci. <laughs> merci non. Henry accepts that. But he retaliates a little bit. Retaliates a little bit. And he tells the French ambassador to tell King Francis that he will not miss seeing Queen Eleanor anyway because he hates seeing women in Spanish dress because they look like devils. So that way he was able to kind of be strong on Catherine of Aragon and also insult Queen Eleanor because he was just that kind of classy guy. I mean, it's pretty nasty comment to make about your own wife and the man you're going to visit wife. But it's a demonstration of how little these two kings at this time regarded their own wives. Francis does not care. He's Ugh. like, ha ha, ho ho ho, you're oh. such a joker. That's a good one, Henry. Yeah, you good know. King Henry, you are funny. And come on over to Blois and we'll have a good time without these Spanish women in their Spanish clothes, our Spanish wives. Ha 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 ha. So then on November 21st, 10 days after they arrived in Calais, Henry rode off with a small entourage, not mentioning it to Anne, where he could be hosted by Francis at his royal palace in Bologna for six days. Which must have really annoyed Anne and hurt her, actually, because during the trip she met with Francis in his rooms at the Staple Inn in Calais for an evening of dancing and feasting. Hobnobbing at a party in English Calais is not the same honor as being formally received and hosted at the French court by King Francis I and Queen Eleanor of the many titles. And Anne had really done her best and Henry had helped her to show up in Calais looking like the Queen of England. Before she and Henry left for Calais, Henry forced, you know, in name only, Queen Catherine, to give up the official jewels of the Queen's of England. Apparently, Catherine said she would not give them to a person who is a reproach to Christendom and is bringing scandal and disgrace upon the king through his taking her to such a meeting as this in France. Catherine was not going to play nice. No. But Henry got what he wanted. The jewels were seized from her. Four bracelets with 18 rubies each, 20 more rubies, and two diamonds were reset for Anne to show off in Calais. And she also wanted to show herself in the height of style. So instead of having clothes made in England for the trip, she had them fashioned in the French style, including a gown of cloth of gold spangled with diamonds, a gown made entirely of gold embroidered velvet, which historian Alison Weir says cost the equivalent of about $50,000 in modern money. The gown would have gone over an underdress, which I'm sure was also very expensive, oh, sure. and the sleeves would be separate. And, and they would be jeweled. Yes. 
Alison Weir also says that without asking Henry, Anne claimed Catherine of Aragon's royal barge, which was huge. It was big enough for a crew of 24 oars. And Anne directed that Catherine's coat of arms be burned off, that the barge be repainted in her colors, blue and purple, and that her own coat of arms replace Catherine's. It shows what Anne's power at court was because no one said, we can't do that. It's the queen's barge. They did what she told them to do. But even with her new title, the Marquis of Pembroke, the jewels of the queens of England hanging off her ears and wrists and around her neck, even with her fancy French toggery and her decked out barge, no royal lady of the French court would formally receive Anne, which shows that Eleanor did have a certain amount of power. She could say no to that. She could say we're not receiving him and no one else is either. It was suggested that Francis's mistress, Anne de Pisseleu, receive Anne Boleyn But that was rejected because that was a way of saying, my mistress will meet your mistress, Henry. And Henry was not having that. I understand why Henry said no, because he was really trying to position Anne at this time to be taken seriously as the next queen of England. But maybe the two Anne's should have met. Anne de Pisseleu was very influential at the French court, much more than Queen Eleanor, even though Eleanor was able to put the kibosh on this meeting. Francis did not care about the opinion and the situation his wife was in. He made it clear he really didn't want to marry Eleanor. He rarely slept with her or spent time with her. He made it clear to his court that he didn't like her by doing those two things. And actually during her coronation in 1531, he watched the procession from a window with his mistress sitting right beside him. So he was clearly showing Eleanor and the public in general that he didn't value his queen. It's very bad. It's bad form. But maybe Maybe he thought it was showing his population he was not bowing to Spain. No, that's true. It he, just must have been such a horrible situation for Eleanor to come into. I can't imagine. What I it was can't like. either, but I think he was saying, even though I'm being forced to marry this woman by Charles V, I am giving her absolutely no, no respect. No, I agree. I agree. It's true. Whatever his reasons and how whatever was in his mind, apparently on his deathbed, he regretted how he had treated Eleanor. But during his lifetime, he made it very clear that his mistress was the first woman in France. Anne Boleyn and Anne de Pisseleu actually had a lot in common. Mm-hmm. They were similar ages Anne Boleyn was only a few years older than the French Anne, and they were in the same circle as maids of honor at the French court. Because remember, Anne Boleyn served Queen Claude for almost seven years, and there's actually a possibility that Anne de Pisseleu might have arrived at the French court when Anne Boleyn was still there. Anne Boleyn left in 1521, and Anne de Pisseleu arrived sometime before 1522, so there could have been some crossover there. Anne de Pisseleu, she was first in the service of Marie of Luxembourg, And then from that, she moved into the service of Louise of Savoy, Francis's mother. So we've talked about the influence of Louise of Savoy and her daughter, Marguerite of Navarre, and the influence they had on Anne Boleyn. So there's reason to imagine that they also influenced the official mistress and that she was there. And perhaps Francis knew her quite well and would have married her. Who knows? Louise of Savoy and Marguerite of Nevers were both women of incredible learning and culture, and both, particularly Marguerite of Nevers, 
there were religious reformers. So Anne Boleyn and Anne de Pisseleu had these religious reforming ideas in common. They had this learning and culture. Both Anne de Pisseleu and Anne Boleyn spent really formative years at the court, influenced by Louise and Marguerite. So I think they would have shared a lot of sensibility. In 1526, at the same time that Anne Boleyn caught Henry's eyes, French Anne caught Francis's. And when Francis married Eleanor of Austria, Anne de Pisseleu was in her service as a lady of waiting. So it was a very similar triangle to that of King Henry, Anne Boleyn, and Catherine of Aragon. It was Francis, Eleanor of Austria, and Anne de Pisseleu. Francis, crappy husband that he might have been, never considered actually annulling his marriage to Queen Eleanor. And I don't know what you think about that. Because she was Catholic, because it was more acceptable to have a mistress in France, so he didn't care as much. I don't know. Queen Eleanor was in a bad position because Francis didn't really need anything from her. He already had seven children and three sons, so he didn't need legitimate heirs in the way that Henry did. Actually, speaking of Francis's heirs, I know this is a little off topic. When have we ever stayed on topic? That is so true. This is a kind of sad and strange death story because King Francis's third son, Charles, his father's darling, he was very handsome and high-spirited, kind of a 16th century frat boy, always playing pranks. In 1545, when he was in his early 20s, he was traveling with his entourage to a battlefield. And one morning they came across a bunch of houses that had been emptied and sealed off because of the plague. Charles, being a frat boy, crashed through the door of one of the houses and kind of went berserk, just having fun, rolling around on the floor, tearing up pillows and furniture, lying in bed, stuffing his face in the pillow, all the while laughing and saying, no son of the King of France ever died of the plague. Oh dear. Yeah, that night he started vomiting, running a fever, shaking uncontrollably, and a few days later he died. Oh, it's so sad. The folly of youth. Really, and he was the favorite son, apparently because the two older brothers were kind of sober and depressed. Do you think that could have come from spending years of their childhood as political prisoners in Madrid? I mean, you don't get over that. I remember reading that one-year-old Elizabeth was betrothed to frat boy Charles at some point. In 1535, Henry was pushing that marriage until Elizabeth was declared illegitimate after Anne Boleyn's downfall. Then, of course, the French didn't want anything to do with Elizabeth until she became queen, and then the whole thing started again with the French, right? Maybe Anne Boleyn should have taken Henry up on that offer he made to her in 1526 to be the official mistress. Why do you say that? Why do you think that would have been better? Look how influential Anne de Pisaloo was. Even though she was just a mistress, she was considered learned cultured. She dominated court functions. She was a patron of the arts. She advised on foreign policy. She met with diplomats. Francis genuinely looked to her for advice and for counsel for almost 20 years. Yeah, it's a long time. And she was the one who finally brokered a peace between Francis and Charles V. She was able to convince Francis to protect the Protestant Huguenots. And on top of all that, she was a good businesswoman. She amassed a private income. She was able to advance her own family. And she kept her head, which I mean and she lived into her 70s as a rich and independent woman. I think Anne Boleyn wanted to be that kind of influence at the English court. And it's interesting because during her years in France and Anne de Pisseleu's years with Louise of Savoy and Marguerite of Nevers as examples, these two Anne's saw firsthand the influence powerful women could have. I think Anne Boleyn envisioned that would be her stature in Henry's court, but 
It all went so wrong. At least if she had been Henry's mistress and not his always disputed wife, she might have lived. It's not necessary to murder your mistress to get rid of her. True, and it's ironic because Anne Boleyn, who wouldn't meet with Anne de Pisseleu in Calais, she was executed at almost exactly the same time that the French Anne was coming into her own as the single most important person at the French court after Francis himself. So even as a mistress, she was able to rise to the kind of influence and, you know, importance at court that Anne Boleyn wanted as a wife to Henry VIII and didn't get. But do you think Henry would have ever taken the kind of advice that Francis did? Do you think he was open to a woman advising him after, I don't know, Thomas Cromwell or Thomas More? I don't know because, I mean, you hear so much talk about Anne Boleyn before they were married, pointing to certain things for him to read and discussing issues with him and policy and meeting ambassadors. And I, I think maybe it was just a case of one of these things where he was willing to take that from a mistress, but not necessarily from a wife. I think there's so much talk by historians about what exactly led to Anne's fall. And it's very complicated. The role of mistress and the role of wife. I think Henry considered them very different things. Very different things. The benefit is that Elizabeth would have never been queen if Anne Boleyn was only a that mistress. That is true. And, and Elizabeth did reign for how much? 45 years? <laughs> and where would our story be without Elizabeth? So it was good for us too. <laughs> so in our next chapter, we will be back with Constance in her prison. So join us next time for more Time's Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. 